0: Welcome to Conservation Cafe. This is a podcast for those of you engaged at the front lines of the conservation and sustainability battles. I'm your host, Hillary Wilkinson. I'm a science communicator and an expert on building support for conservation efforts. I'm also a 20 year veteran of what I consider to be a war to protect our planet and ourselves that we are not winning, at least not yet. This podcast shines a bright spotlight on areas where we are making progress and how that progress is coming about. My hope is to elevate our collective ability to win more and more battles over time and ultimately the war, because we can't afford not to. Thanks for tuning in.
1: A big part of it is that often scientists are in such a different world than the people they're trying to communicate with. They're experts, and they know so much, and I think that they often feel that to feel credible when they're presenting to a group that they need to come off as so scientific and authoritative and credible, and what they lose there is a connection where they're really speaking to people's hearts.
0: Our theme for today's podcast is science communication, and my guest, Kathy Angel, Has dedicated her career to empowering environmental scientists to speak to people's hearts, not just their minds, so that they can get broad buy in and support for the very important work that they're doing. First, for a little context, when the COVID lockdown started, I renewed a lapsed subscription to the Seattle Times, and I was immediately struck by how tiny it was and the fact that there were only two sections the main section and a sports section. And as the pandemic unfolded, I grew increasingly perplexed that one entire section of the newspaper was devoted to something that wasn't actually happening at that time, namely sports, and not to say something like science and technology, which had actually upended our lives. And then I remembered a book I love by Chris Mooney called Unscientific America. Mooney documents how the U.S. is increasingly becoming a scientifically illiterate society and describes a series of disturbing trends. A few that stood out for me. First, between 89 and 05, there was a two-thirds decrease in the number of newspapers featuring weekly science-related sections, including apparently the Seattle Times. Another one, if you watch five hours of cable news, you will probably only catch one minute's worth of science and technology. One minute out of five hours. And third, at present, apparently only 18% of Americans know a scientist personally. Now, one consequence of this decreased news coverage on science, according to Moody, is that our collective understanding of scientific principles and findings is on the decline, including a very interesting study showing that only half of adult Americans know that the Earth orbits the sun once a year. I'm not even going to go there. Another consequence is a growing distrust of science and scientists, and specifically environmental scientists. 40% of Americans distrust what scientists say about the environment. And where there is distrust, there is little to no chance that society as a whole will respond to calls to action when problems and crises arise. This, of course, is playing out with COVID and the issue of masking. And, of course, we've been seeing it playing out over many, many years on the subject of climate change. Now, Kathy Angel's work is about helping environmental scientists regain this lost trust and speak about their work in ways that engage people's hearts. Part of Kathy's expertise emerged from her 18 years spent coordinating Washington State's Coastal Training Program. Welcome to the program, Kathy. Thanks, Hillary. So, Kathy, you recently launched your own company called Kathy Angel Communications, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your transition and kind of what led you to where you are now.
1: Well, it was definitely a transition and one that, I thought about for a few years, but was way too terrified to even think about moving forward into launching my own business. So as you mentioned, I had an 18-year career coordinating the Coastal Training Program, which is with, with Department of Ecology, a state agency, and also with the National Estuarine Research Reserve, which is a federal agency. It's kind of a unique animal there. And so what I started seeing was such a need, well, I'd really seen it for years, but I became more and more involved in teaching science-based training programs and realized that there was such a disconnect between what agency scientists or local consulting firm scientists were saying to the public and this disconnect between what the public was hearing and what they were saying. And they often had really important messages, but I just was seeing that it wasn't getting out there in a clear Way And so I saw a need for a lot more training in the science realm, scientists and also government officials in communicating their messages clearly. And so that's why I decided to leave a a job I actually loved and become a presentation coach and trainer.
0: That's great. I really commend you for taking a step into this private sector realm and hanging your own shingle. I know it's scary. But I know a lot of people are benefiting from your expertise in this. And I want to share with you a cartoon from The New Yorker that I absolutely love and that I think speaks to what you were just talking about. So for those of you listening, you can't see this, so I'm going to describe it. So imagine a group of uh, women of a certain age, and and they look to be very highly cultured and high socioeconomic status. They've got pearls around their necks and fancy dresses, and they're sitting around a little teapot in a fancy living room. And one of them is saying to another one, I don't know why I don't care about the bottom of the ocean, but I don't. <laughs>
1: That's awesome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I love that cartoon because to me, it speaks to the reason why I got into this world of science communication that just there's so many critically important issues facing planet Earth that we call home. And so many people don't know anything about it and or don't care. And that's kind of why I ended up here. I'm hearing that's kind of how you ended up here. And my personal opinion is that Part of the reason that we're here is that the communication of this important information about the oceans, about air, about watersheds, has not really resonated with the general public. It hasn't really grabbed them by the heart. It hasn't really engaged them and made them partners in protecting and restoring things. So I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, why is it that you think that those scientists and technical experts and professionals who are working on conservation and restoration struggle so much to communicate about the work that they do?
1: That's a really good question, and it's certainly one I've thought about a lot. I think that a big part of it is that often scientists are in such a different world than the people they're trying to communicate with. They're experts, and they know so much, and I think that they often feel that to feel credible when they're presenting to a group, that they need to come off as so, you know, scientific and authoritative and credible. And what they lose there is a connection where they're really speaking to people's hearts. You know, it cannot, their presentations can often be very cerebral. And again, knowing how to pare down, knowing how to use language that people can relate to and understand. And so I think that it's important and I, and I and I want to say that there certainly are some scientists out there that are excellent communicators and I've also had the opportunity to work with many who really have appreciated learning some strategies for communicating in a way that people can take in and and understand. I just wanted
0: to sort of piggyback on one of your ideas which is sort of the construct in which I think scientists and technical experts have been forced, not necessarily by choice, into this construct of presenting information in this very structured format. So, you know, the kind of you share your methodology, your approach, your methodology, your findings, your conclusion, your summary. It's this very kind of linear approach, which isn't necessarily creative and open and, and doesn't really land with a lot of people. And so one of the things that I think we in the science communication realm are trying to do is kind of crack open that concrete box, if you will, and help free people working on these really important areas to speak in different ways
1: and also not to get ridiculed by their colleagues. That's right. Absolutely. And it's so funny. I'll hear scientists defend this this approach that they need to take to be credible and all this. And yet they'll go to a science conference and come back and complain about how brain dead they felt in a lot of the sessions. So I think that, you know, while honoring a certain approach that they need to take when they're speaking to other scientists, I think that there's definitely a different approach when they're speaking to lay people that needs to happen.
0: Before we jump into kind of what are some of the tips and techniques you have for them to help them communicate more effectively with laypeople, I want to ponder this question of the importance of their ability to do it.
1: Well, the world we're living in right now has so many complex environmental issues. And just like you talked about in the New Yorker cartoon, people are just going to tune out if they don't feel like it touches them At all. Like maybe the woman in the cartoon would feel differently if she somehow had that information connected back to the seafood that she loves to eat when she goes out to dinner. Or maybe if they go on a vacation to the tropics and go scuba diving or snorkeling. Maybe it would touch her differently if they could see that connection between their own experiences and what they're hearing in more of a scientific realm. But the, I think this there's so many environmental issues, and we're at a critical time of needing to clearly communicate those and showing people how they can respond, how they can get involved, how they can make personal choices even if it's like going out and what type of fish are they ordering? Are they ordering something that's sustainable? So it's critical that the scientists learn how to effectively communicate with lay people.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. So thank you for sharing that. So what I'd like to do now, because this podcast is really about how, not just what the problem is, but really how do we empower people to make changes in their own practices to kind of spread this skill set and really start to gain some traction on some really important conservation issues. So I'd like to start drilling down into some of the work that you do in your Kathy Angel communications world. And you've described there being kind of three categories of things you do. Helping people transform the way they do PowerPoint presentations is the first. The second is communicating data in a way that sticks in people's minds. And the third is developing a crystal clear message. So what I'd like to do now is just take those one by one and invite you to tell us a little bit about what you teach your students about how to be better at these things. So the first is transforming the way they do PowerPoint presentations.
1: Yes. (laughs) And there's a reason that one's number one on my list, because that seems to be the one that is most challenging. People have a love-hate relationship. Well, let's say I have a love-hate relationship with PowerPoint. It's really, for years... I saw so many terrible PowerPoints that I wanted just to run the other way when someone brought one up. And then I actually realized that PowerPoint is quite a powerful software program if you use it in a certain way. So two words come to mind, cognitive load. And cognitive load is What's required when we're learning something new? How much brain power do we have to use to take in and learn new information? And I'm here to say that so many people with PowerPoint presentations make their audiences work way too hard. And when people have to work too hard, they shut down, they check out, and they don't remember what you say. In fact, one of my favorite authors and brain scientists is Dr. John Medina, who wrote a book called Brain Rules. And he says that when people just, say, see a bunch of bullet points on a slide or hear someone just say something, was stating facts, they're only going to remember 10% in three days. And so there are techniques that you can use to help people actually remember 65%. And so that's a lot of what I've built into my training classes as far as strategies to help people redesign their PowerPoint presentations.
0: So I have taken your class, and I'm now honored to be co-teaching this class with you in the future. So I know some of these techniques, but can you tell my audience a few of the techniques that you teach people about how to make their PowerPoints? connect more, and how to make them more memorable?
1: You bet. Well, one thing is, and this becomes very clear to people very quickly in my class, but I truly have this visceral reaction to to bullets when I see bullets in a PowerPoint presentation. So the way that I teach people is to think in terms of creating one concept per slide. And that helps you as the presenter deliver the information, and it also helps people take in the information better if you're only using one concept. Also, using large photographs, and this was one of the key pieces that Dr. John Medina said, is that if you use a large photograph in relation to what you're talking about, and I mean I mean, stretch it out from border to border on the slide, that will help people remember 65% in three days instead of 10%. And so people in the audience, listening audience may be saying, well, why is that? What does that do? Well, what it does is it triggers emotion. And if you can trigger some emotion in your listening, in your, in your audience, they're going to internalize that and it's going to drive, when emotion gets triggered, it drives the information deeper into their memory into the memory portions, long-term memory of their brain. And so so large photographs is one way. The other thing that triggers emotion is telling stories. And that's sharing. If, if a scientist, for instance, speaking about, say, coastal erosion – and they can use a story about maybe how they went out to the coast or along a a river on a shoreline and saw a house that had partially fallen into the water, and they can tell a story about that. That, again, it activates people's brains. It helps them take in that information better. And then I would say the third way is to design your PowerPoints in a way that, again, use these best practices. And these are just a couple, there's a whole bunch more. But the bottom line is, use a whole lot less text, use large photographs, and include stories. And so some people might say, well, what if people can't remember what we said, or what if we, you know, we used to be able to put all this text on our PowerPoints, and they'd get printed out, and they'd be sent home with the audience, so they'd have everything we might say. And what I say to that is, well, that's called a slideument. When you have a slide full of text, it's not really a slide, it's not really a document, it's called a slideument, and it's not effective. So what the alternative to that would be is to create a handout with your key points that are in the order that you're covering them in your talk with some room for people to take notes. And so as you're speaking, you can rest assured that people have the critical information and then that frees you up to design your slides in a creative, interesting, engaging way that people will remember, will help people take in that information and make what you're saying way more accessible.
0: That's great, Kathy. So I think what I'm hearing is, These tips of one image per slide, if you're going to do an image, stretch it out frame to frame. Don't try to shove two or three images in a slide. You want people to connect and see and get into one image. Tell stories, connect with people emotionally. And finally, don't make a slide. Don't do like date a lot of text and photos on the same page. She's. I, I think you hate bullets as much as I do on a slide. And I love that idea. I've started doing it myself, I have to say, since taking your class, of creating take-home messages in a single page and handing them out to the audience. It's amazing how much it frees you from feeling like you have to impart this verbally to them. It's a really freeing tool. So if you do nothing else, I would suggest you do that. Two
1: things that might be coming up for people is they might be thinking, well gosh, if you only have one concept per slide, that sounds like maybe I need to put a whole lot more slides in my PowerPoint presentation. You know, isn't there a rule against that? And What I would say is, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. There is no shortage of PowerPoint slides. So my technique is to have a lot of slides, but go quickly. I mean, in this day and age, people's attention spans are a lot shorter. So it makes it more interesting and lively for them. But it also makes it a lot more fun for you as a presenter. And it helps you actually remember what you're going to say if you have lots of slides that trigger as prompts what you want to say versus having to have one slide up for five minutes and having to remember all the things you were going to say. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that occasionally I know that people do need to have some points of text on a slide, like if you're at a meeting and you need to summarize or something like that. So what I would say to that is, Don't use the bullet points. Never use the bullet points. You can have, but you can have each point on a separate line and bring them in. You put some animation to them, bring them in one at a time and read along with your audience. Again, on those few slides that you might have that has, anytime you have text on your slide, you want to read it along with your audience because here's the thing. It's been scientifically proven that you cannot listen, to, be listening to a speaker and taking in text and reading text off a slide at the very same time. So what happens is that people tend to shut down. Often speakers will have a slide of bullets up, and then they're either paraphrasing it, which makes the audience work twice as hard, or they're talking about something completely different while this whole slide of text is up. And so so what you want to do is then if you do have text, bring it in one line at a time and read along, because you always want to be one with your slide. You don't ever want there to be a disconnect between your you and your slide.
0: Excellent advice. Thank you, Kathy. So note to listeners, PowerPoints, you can do them, but you got to do them right. <laughs> And Kathy's got some tips and techniques. I think you got info on your uh, website, right? And she's completely transformed the way I do my own PowerPoints, and I hope that it helps you as well. I want to move into the second category of work that you do with your new company, which is data communication. And it's very related to PowerPoint, of course, because oftentimes presentations include graphics and charts that are trying to communicate data. And before I turn the microphone over to you, Kathy, I want to kind of share a really excellent example of technical information conveyed graphically in an excellent way. And it's actually held up in trainings as a really great example. And so I'm going to kind of describe it to you. And it's by a pioneer in data communication. His name is Edward Tufte. And it has to do with What happened when Napoleon marched his army into Moscow in 1812? And I am not exactly a history buff, but when I saw this image, I kind of instantly grasped how messed up that whole thing was. So the image, if you can imagine, is a massive band, a big, thick line. It slowly inches across towards the right of the paper and gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And that represents the size of the army getting smaller and smaller and smaller as it marched east to Moscow. And then it gets to Moscow, and it's about, you know, somewhere around half of what it was when it started. Then it turns around and marches back to the beginning. And by the time it gets back to the beginning, it has shrunken down to barely anything. And apparently the numbers are something like half a million soldiers started that march and a hundred thousand soldiers returned from that march. They did not have a successful march. And th- that information was conveyed in one compelling graphic. And so I would like to ask you, Kathy, how do people take complicated scientific data and information and do what Edward Tufte did with this image, turn it into something that anybody who's not an environmental scientist, can kind of quickly understand.
1: I've seen that graphic, and it is it is brilliant and certainly held up as one of the most amazing maps of that battle and that march that is out there. It's often referenced, for sure. This is interesting. Tufty goes really deep with information, and, and I know in his trainings and his books, he goes really deep with science and graphics and information. And so the people that I've worked with, you know, honestly, they're a lot of times they're they're busy professionals and so they may not have time to put a lot of that level of effort into creating a graph, but there certainly are some general guidelines between Types of graphs, for instance, to use if you're going to communicate data, and some best practices around communicating data. And one might be that, for instance, a line graph is best for communicating how something changes over time. A uh, bar graph, the kind of the humble bar graph, is great for comparing categories. Sometimes if you just have a single number that's of particular importance, you can just ditch the graph and just have that up on your slide. You know, I've had people put up one percentage sign on their slide and then explain what that meant. So I guess for me, it's about making it simpler and people have access to different software programs. So people in my class come back with graphics. Maybe they developed in a GIS program or maybe someone developed it in PowerPoint or in Excel. And so I try to work with people where they are, but some best practices that people could apply to their, say, if they have a graph, here's what they need to remember. First of all, people don't know where to look. So if you bring a graph up, and you're communicating data that way, and you have several data sets on it, first of all, you've got to take out anything that doesn't apply to your main message. And I guess the first step would be to actually figure out what is your main message on that slide, and then write it in sentence form across the top of of the slide in the graph. For instance, you wouldn't just want to have a title that says climate change temperatures or something like that. If you're wanting to show how it changed over time, you might want to say climate change is anticipated to cause sea level to go up, you know, X amount, in the next 10 years. But put a message on there and make it a sentence so that it, that it's a clear message. The other thing is to help people know where to look. So there's a word called pre-attentive attributes, and it's certainly something Tufty referenced in this graph of how it got smaller and then it got bigger. But this word pre-attentive attributes means that you can help direct your viewer's eye by color by size, by, there's a third one that I'm not remembering in this moment, but anyway, but so for instance, you might put a, a red circle around a part on a graph that you want people to, to know or to, to notice. Another thing might be again to use size. So those are just a few tips. But the main the main takeaway i I'd like to, I'm rambling here a little bit. But the main takeaway is for people to know where to look easily, know where to look on your slide, and also what's the key message that you're wanting to communicate.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's great, Kathy. It, it actually makes I'm remembering being at a conference one time and hearing a speaker. He was the keynote speaker, and he was speaking about the topic of kind of fish populations globally, you know, halibut in the North Atlantic, and just species after species after species. And what he did was he showed, he called it the fish graph. It was on the X-axis was time, so years, and on the Y-axis was the population of that particular stock of fish. And he showed one slide after the other with different species, and in every single slide, the line on the left, went from the top of the y-axis kind of down to the bottom of the x-axis, basically very, very succinctly showing that crashing populations of species of fish all around the globe. And over the course of the 20 or 25 species of fish and their kind of population declines, he had very powerfully conveyed a story that this is a global crisis in crashing populations of fish stocks. And I was just thinking about that as you were talking because he, I think he did something that I think you would agree with, which is tell a story in your graphs. Mm -hmm. Don't just show numbers, but there needs to be a story in there because I, here I am like 10 years later, I remember the overarching story of his graphs. I don't remember each of the individual species or what part of the world they were in, but I got the take home message, which is globally fish populations are in trouble.
1: Absolutely. It's the stories that make data come alive for people. So that is so critical. And again, I think a lot of times people have mistakenly felt that, oh, let me just share the facts with my audience, and then they'll understand it and be right right in line with my way of thinking. And that's not what happens. You definitely have to tell a story with data and make it come alive for your audience. So one of my favorite authors is Dr. Brene Brown. And she has this this saying about stories that I just love. And she said, stories are data with a soul. I just love that because her whole point is, make it come alive for people. They will react to it very, very differently if they can understand it and if it even somehow relates to their personal life and experience.
0: That makes me think about one of my favorite authors on this topic, which is Randy Olson, Mm -hmm. who wrote the book Don't Be Such a Scientist. And Randy is deep into the weeds on effective science communication. And in fact, he basically went to Hollywood to study filmmaking because he came to believe that the film industry had it dialed in terms of touching people emotionally. And that, I think, is something that we can learn from, and I certainly have learned from Randy. But he talks about how... It's not enough to share information that goes in somebody's head and that's factual. He has this great image of Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, the big bodybuilder, former governor of California, actor. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is there in his like little briefs and his arms up and he's huge and he looks like the Incredible Hulk. And there's arrows at his brain, arrows at his chest, arrows at his stomach, and arrows in his groin area. And Randy's message is you have to kind of drive your message down the body to the groin. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And you need to like connect and hit people emotionally is basically what Randy's trying to say. This brings us to the kind of third category of things that you're working on with your new work. And that is the topic of developing a crystal clear message. I'm a little obsessed with messaging. I'm sort of one of those annoying people who goes around the world and sees examples of bad messages. And I want to share one that I see three days a week when I go to join the master swim team at the local swimming pool here in Bellingham. There's a little sign in the women's locker room and it says, are you six or under? Please swim with an adult. And if you have ever had a child who's six and under, you would know that the vast majority of them cannot read. (laughs) Mine mine certainly couldn't at that age. So that was an example of messaging gone awry. And I just wanted to kind of start with a humorous anecdote like that. I was wondering if you could tell me in your mind why it's so important to create crystal clear messages and and what they are.
1: It's a really good question. So there's one thought that everybody in your audience will have in mind when they, they come to hear you speak. And that is, what's in it for me? So you always, whenever anybody creates a presentation, it's so important to think about who's your audience, what do they care about, what solutions and, and benefits are you bringing to them? You know, what's the problem, what benefits, and then ultimately, how could your what you're offering help them in some way. And so I think the messaging piece is often where people get off track because again, they have so much information and they don't always know how to kind of dig out of the weeds and simmer it down and basically take stuff away so that they're just left with the nugget of what they need to present and what they need to build their presentation around. So, for instance, as you know, one of the things we do in in our class is a whole exercise around having people come up with their key message and to get to that point. It doesn't always just pop out easily. It takes going through this process of, again, identifying the problem, the audience, the possible solutions. What does your audience care about? How could your Solutions benefit them, and to know that if they were to walk out of your presentation and just remember one thing, that they would be crystal clear on what that one thing might be.
0: Yeah, I remember when I took your class, and one of the exercises you have us do is pair up with somebody else and go through this exercise called a message box, which is this very clever kind of step by step process of getting you to your clear. Message, And I'm telling you, like, I work in the field of science communication. I myself struggle with my crystal clear message on various topics. And this exercise, this message box, is a great, great tool to do it. And, well, first I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the message box.
1: Yeah, it originated from an organization called Compass and and Nancy Olson. It's actually, that's where I learned about it is in her book. I think it's, uh, is it come down from the... Escape from the Escape Ivory Tower. Escape from the Ivory Tower. I remember the Ivory Tower part. Escape from the Ivory Tower. And I thought it was so great. And so immediately incorporated it into my class. And then since have just done a few little modifications on it that seem to work better within the context of our workshop. But it is one of the it's, – it's an example – well, the way they designed it is you literally have a box that's – it's broken into different sections – and so you can sort of go where to whichever section you feel most drawn to. So it is like, what's the issue? What's the specific problem? Who's your audience? And it, just what I was mentioning earlier, like, what do they care about? What are possible solutions? And then what's kind of the key message that emerges from all that? And then I sort of took that and Remodified it or modified it a little bit to be a bit more linear. Anyway, so it's worked really well. And it's one of the most powerful parts, I think, of our training is that because until the students get really clear on what their key message is, they're not focused on how to design the rest of their presentation. So it's, it's really, it's really important. And it's important for your audience to know what you're up there talking about and, how important it is for you to be real clear with what your key message and why they're there right up front, and then really to repeat it again at the end, if not weaving it through your story, what that key message is.
0: I think the point that you made is so important, and I want to underscore it, is the work to figure out what your key message is should be your first step before you even start building a presentation, because once you've landed on it, everything flows from there. I remember being paired up in your class with a young woman who, I think she worked for the King County Stormwater Department. And I remember her going through this message box process with her and kind of comparing notes, and we were both struggling, and she was struggling just like I was. And at the end of this work to do this message box, she landed on this concept, which ended up being her key message, which I remember to this day. And it was stormwater detention ponds only work if the water can get there. Ah. Yeah. And so basically they had been dealing with all these blocked entrances to these stormwater ponds, and none of the water was getting in there to get treated. And that was kind of the problem. And, and she had built this whole presentation around that as the problem. But really the key message was, You can't treat the water if it can't get into the system that's supposed to treat it. And it was, I saw firsthand the power of that message box working. And I I love that tool. It's a great tool. Big applause to Nancy Olson. All right. So we're kind of coming to the close of our podcast. And I want to talk a little bit about, you talk to me a lot about these adult learning principles as being the guiding guidepost, I guess. (laughs) Sorry for the awkwardness of that, but that sort of guided your classes. Could you speak a little bit about adult learning principles?
1: You betcha. A few years ago, I went back to graduate school and I got a master's degree in adult learning. And I think one thing that has made these classes so successful is that There's a whole foundation of adult learning principles at the base of them, because it all gets down to how do people learn, how do they take in information, and how can we make our information accessible to them, intriguing and engaging, so that they will actually go away and remember it. And so one of the biggest learning principles that I would say is just such an important one to keep in mind is on activating existing knowledge because it's very hard for people to learn something new if they don't have anything to connect it to. So it's really the job of you as presenters to be able to kind of stimulate your audience's mind so that there it's sort of fertile ground for your, your information to land in their brains. And so some ways you can do this is you might ask some questions about the topic. I just gave a talk yesterday, and I used the example of, the Oso landslide that happened a few years ago. So if I was from a state agency, for instance, and I would like to talk to people about how many landslides there are in Washington State every year and how much money the state spends, I might start off by saying, did any of you see pictures of the Oso landslide? And then let people raise their hands Did any of you go there in person and see it? And then maybe talk to them a little bit about that. And then follow that up with, well, you know, in Washington State, there are thousands of landslides every year, and the state spends over $15 million a year in dealing with landslides. So that's just a little small example of how to engage people. So make sure that you make that connection with them. So anyone who's giving a a science, any kind of presentation, really, but a science presentation to help activate their existing knowledge knowledge so that the n- new information that you have will stick in their brain and they'll they will understand it. The learning theory on that is called the constructivist theory of learning in that you help create a foundation upon which the students can lay new information.
0: That is fantastic Kathy. Thank you so much for sharing that. Kathy, I just want to close by saying one thing which is the last time I saw you we were talking about your new endeavor with Kathy Angel Communications. And you said something that I loved, which is you said, I work on projects now that bring me joy, and that I get to collaborate on. And that is my new motto for my own company. And I have had a lot of joy working with you in this podcast. And I really appreciate the collaboration. Thank you, Hillary. I feel the very same way. It'll probably come as a surprise to nobody that the field of science communications seems to be exploding right now. There's just this growing body of literature on the topic. And even people like Alan Alda, you know, from MASH, has started taking up the reins on this. He started a center at Stony Brook University where they teach scientists using uh, improv theater techniques, which is really interesting. So, you know, Kathy and I are part of this growing army and we're proud to be that. So you know me, I like to wrap up my episodes by kind of summarizing the key takeaways. I can't help myself. I'm a facilitator, but I decided to do it today in kind of a clever format. I am going to share Kathy's key takeaways in the form of the five commandments for environmental professionals. So here goes your five commandments, environmental professionals, Commandment number one, you shall not murder people's sensibilities and patience with facts alone, but shall find interesting ways of communicating via stories that connect. Commandment number two, honor your hard-won data sets by communicating them in a way that sticks and is meaningful to people. Commandment number three, remember the power of the message box and consider it holy. Commandment number four. You shall apply the principles of adult learning when delivering a PowerPoint and help increase people's memory of your learnings. This includes using one image per slide and finding ways to activate their existing knowledge. And commandment number five, you shall endeavor to understand your audience and find a personal anecdote or story that will help connect you with them and make them like you. Thanks for tuning in to Conservation Cafe. I invite you to visit our website, conservationcafe.org, for links to resources I referenced in this episode. There, you can also provide feedback, make suggestions for future topics, and share your own stories of conservation progress. Conservation Cafe is a product of my firm, Veda Environmental, which helps connect the dots between science, policy, and people. For more info, visit vedaenv.com. I'd like to thank my VEDA podcast team, Marie Roethlisberger, our communications lead, Melanie Del Rosario, content specialist, and Sarah Brace, strategic advisor. Thanks for listening to Conservation Cafe.